And that means it's time for the first hour of the Dr. and Mrs. Future Show. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Ladies and gentlemen, KSEO presents the Dr. Future Show. If you would like to join in our show today, you can call us at 831-479-1080. That's 831-479-1080. And now, your host, Dr. Future. Hey, folks, welcome to another Future Tuesday. We have a special show this week. Two hours, we're going to be talking about quantum entanglement and all things related to that. In the studio, we have our guest, Dr. Nick Herbert, who is a quantum physicist, and uh, his colleagues, people he actually knows, won the Nobel Prize just a couple of weeks ago in physics, the Nobel Prize for Physics. Because of quantum entanglement. Because of stuff that Nick was involved with himself back as early as the 70s, and we'll be talking about that. And also we have Mrs. Future, of course, who you just heard from. Yeah, I'm still here. And Bobby Wilder in San Francisco, our science correspondent there. Hey, Bobby. Hey, hey. So, yeah, we're all entangled here. Yeah, yeah we're <laughs> entangled. And we've got Gabby listening on the line, old friend of all of ours, including Nick's. And for the uninitiated, a lot of us know Nick for many, many years as he's part of our Santa Cruz community, Boulder Creek to be even more precise. But he is an American physicist, author, best known for his book Quantum Reality, which tries to explain quantum reality to the people. He studied engineering physics at Ohio State, graduated in 59, then he got a PhD in physics from Stanford University in 67, working on nuclear scattering experiments. And he's held a number of posts in industry, such as the Memorex Corporation, where he developed new magnetic materials, electrostatic optical measuring devices, theoretical work on Lorentz microscopy, and has been part of what, what's of interest to us this afternoon is that he was part of what was called the Fundamental Physics Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab back in May 75 with Elizabeth Rauscher and George Weissman. Some and people have called them the hippies who saved physics. There's a book on it called The Hippies Who Saved <laughs> Physics, right. And their, their interest was in the interpretation of quantum mechanics, what's known as the EPR paradox, uh, which we'll be talking about today. This is the einstein Podolsky rosen paradox and Bell's inequality. They pursued their interest. Most of these were outside of the mainstream of physics at the time, including altered states of consciousness and how that is affected. I mean, physics should be able to include an understanding of such things as psychedelic drugs and psi phenomena if it's really going to understand what the nature of consciousness is all about. Very interesting also was that a lot of these meetings were held at Esalen Institute out in the Big Sur area and was one of the beginnings of uh, the exploration of the intersection of physics with consciousness. So welcome to the show, Nick. Good to have you. Hi, futures. Yeah, hey there. <laughs> So this must be kind of exciting for you to have some of your colleagues actually win a Nobel Prize. There were three of them that got the Nobel Prize. I only know John Clauser. There's huh. John Clauser, who lives in Walnut Creek up near Berkeley. Uh -huh. And there is Alain Aspect, who's a Frenchman, and Anton Zeilinger, who is from Austria. But Clauser is the main one. If, if Clauser hadn't gone off the rails... None of this would have ever happened. 
<laughs> right. I think you said in your article, in your blog post, that he was the first person to respond to Bell's theorem, <laughs> this white paper sitting in limbo. John Clauser was a grad student who picked it up. and could, you know. Right. This is probably one of the oddest Nobel Prizes ever. How so? Well... You know the history of the Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. <laughs> yeah. And he made lots yeah. of money that way, but he felt that it was used mostly for evil purposes like war. Mm. And so he wanted to encourage scientists to work on practical things that help people. Mm. So the Nobel Prize was set up for whoever did the best thing that year for a, a practical invention that would help people. Hmm. That's how it started. As I recall, the first Nobel Prize was for a automatic lighthouse uh, <laughs> system somehow in the really? ocean. Wow. Like a Tom Swift invention. Yes. <laughs> and shortly, yeah. after, shortly after that, x-rays were discovered. No one knew how they worked, but they were used immediately in hospitals to look for broken bones. Mm. Even though they did so, Rankin won the Nobel Prize for x-rays, even though it took years to figure out what exactly an x-ray was. This quantum entanglement thing is absolutely impractical. <laughs> it has no applications. And the reason for that is rather strange. Well, wait a minute. Uh, it didn't, but they're saying today that quantum holography and all kinds of things are now related to this. Well, related, yes, but I'm going to okay. talk about the way physics works, the way quantum physics works, the way all physics works, actually. Uh -huh. There are experiments that mm -hmm. you can do in a lab uh -huh. And there are theories in quantum theory, which has never been wrong. Mm. So there's experiments and theories, and there's another aspect of the world. That's reality. <laughs> right. Reality, it's reality is what lies behind these things and is unknown and untouchable. That's what the Nobel Prize is about. Mm -hmm. It's about proving something about reality using logic and experiment, but this aspect of reality cannot be tested directly. So this is the first time that a Nobel Prize has been given for work on reality <laughs> rather than theory or experiment. Wow. Oh boy, we're going to have to get into the, the guts of that before too long, but we're going to go to a break, so don't start explaining it just yet. Okay? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, we like to leave the audience maybe on a cliffhanger. Well, it's going to be a little wild to explain reality, so, yeah. so we, we can take <laughs> a break. <laughs> What's reality, Nick? All right, we'll be right back. In 15 words? Yeah, yeah. In 15 seconds. 15 seconds before the break. <laughs> Do we really didn't know what reality was or still don't? I mean, on the most fundamental level or, or what? Yeah, you know, a lot anyway. of people talk about reality, but Bell actually did something about it. Oh, Bell, it. John Bell. John Bell. Yes, okay. Let's Irish phys Irish physicist. All right, let's get into John Bell after the break. We're back, and we're talking to Dr. Nick Herbert 
about quantum entanglement, about the Nobel Prize that was just won in studying that topic. And he's going to attempt to explain to us a little bit about that right now. So, Nick, you were going to mention uh, that John Bell was a seminal figure. Yes, in, a formidable uh, Irish physicist, yeah. where it all began. Where With, it all uh, began, yes. Well, it'd be hard to start in the middle. The important thing is to maybe get a little taste for the, the field of play here. And the field of play is quantum mechanics. Yes. And that's our theory of the world, the real down-under part of the world. The very world is very small. And... It is a very strange theory because it's a perfect theory. It has made no wrong predictions and it has been tested in thousands and thousands of ways. It's a wonderful theory. Never wrong. Never Better wrong, than science. Never, huh? never wrong. <laughs> except it's very strange <laughs> because it, it represents the world in a, in a funny way. Mm. It represents the world differently depending on whether you look at it or not. So your very attention affects... <laughs> so reality's kind of shy, according well, to this theory. Yeah, huh? kind of shy. But, but not your attention, not consciousness. You have to use a measuring instrument to look at it. You can't just think about it. Like you, the polarization of a photon. Well, your eye is such a measuring instrument. We're built in. We have ears and eyes and things are measuring instruments. Yeah. So when you don't look at the world... It is a wave of probability, and when you look at the world, it's particles, photons or electrons or things like that. So waves when you don't look, particles when you do look. Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing. Physicists don't know what looking is. <laughs> Other than in the sense of using the term. What do they mean when they're using the term? Well, we know we have things like Geiger counters and eyes and ears that do looking, yeah. that, as they say, collapse the wave function, turn the wave function into something actual. So before you look, everything is potential, everything is probability, is possibilities, and when you do look, it becomes actual. But we don't know how that happens. <laughs> we don't have a theory. We don't know if we caused it or not. Well, okay. no, no. We don't have a theory for what a measuring instrument is. Ah. This is called the measurement problem. <laughs> is that related to like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it? Did well, it, it sounds like that. Yes, it, it does. But, it, but this is physics. This is a philosophy. Okay. Uh, we actually would like to know the theory of an instrument, but we don't. That's called the measurement problem. Uh. Okay. Now, we have another problem in physics. It's called the interpretation problem. When you don't look, the world is described by this wave of probability. It's called the wave function. When you don't look, it's called the wave function. We don't know what that is either. We don't know how that relates to actuality, to reality. It's just an instrument that we use. That's called the interpretation problem. Hmm. So, before you look, everything is... is represented, not described, represented by the wave function. And then when you look, it becomes particles. And physicists don't know anything about, don't know how to really talk really good about the wave function. They'll have to use it really well. And they don't know how to explain measurements. Hmm. So that's part of the quantum reality question. Hmm. Okay. And this is all because... The quantum world is smaller than we can see. So well, it's all math. It's also alien. It's, it's made according to some alien design that, that we can't understand. 
but we got this way of dealing with it, with this marvelous theory that explains everything, not explained, describes everything, predicts everything, but we don't understand it because it's made by some alien, some creator that isn't, doesn't have a human mind. Well, wait a minute, who created quantum theory then? If, I mean, in but we, st we stumbled into it, the Heisenberg and Schrodinger and Dirac. Stumbled into it. Well, but they were forced into it by this worked. Even though we can't visualize it, and even though we don't want a measurement is, it works like a charm. We know it works. We know it works. So it's kind of like most people don't necessarily know how a car works, but they just drive that, it because it works. That, that's, that's a good analogy for quantum mechanics. We yeah. know how to drive this thing, but we don't know what's under the hood. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask why you say it's alien? Is it, like what, what is the no quality that it makes it alien? Something. Well, it, it's not designed like a human would design it. It's mysterious in a very deep way. Beautiful, though. Entanglement is one of the beauties of it. When I just talked to you about, about one particle, if you have one particle, it was a one-particle wave function, and then if you look at it, it turns into a one particle. Mm -hmm. But two particles are now even more interesting because there's something called entanglement, quantum entanglement, where you have two particles, and they're so together that the wave function for them is known, but the particles themselves don't have any attributes. <laughs> they don't have any attributes, but the couple does. Mm -hmm. The two together have attributes. Uh -huh. Now, usually the way this experiment works is you take these two entangled particles, you send one to Alice and one to Bob. Mm -hmm. or on opposite sides of the solar system. It could be. They could be anywhere, but they could be far away or close in, but you send them to Alice and Bob. And they don't have any identities yet, but their coupling does, their pairness does. Mm. Now, if, anyone may, if, if Bob makes a measurement, his particle instantly acquires an identity. It becomes a particle. And so does Alice's, even though she doesn't look at it. It becomes... Uh, depending on the type of entanglement, either the opposite spin or the opposite polarization or the same polarization. You can get both kinds of entanglement. Same, same, and same opposite kinds of entanglement. And this happens instantly. Mm -hmm. No matter what the distance. No which, matter what the distance. Which supposedly goes faster than the speed well, of light. It, it, well, this is just in the theory, of course. Yeah. See, it, it doesn't mean that this happens in actuality or in reality. It, just in the theory, it looks as though as soon as one makes a measurement, the other particle acquires a property. Instantly. This has been shown experimentally. No, 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 no. this is in the theory. All? It's still it's, the theory. We're, we're just talking about the theory. Okay. This happens okay. in the wave function. Yeah. Now, that's bad enough. That's bad enough that, that it's instantaneous. But here's another thing about it. This property doesn't diminish with distance. That no matter how far apart Alice and Bob are in the theory, this still happens. Instantly anywhere in the known universe. But it doesn't diminish. Like a radio signal. Or like a radio signal or gravity or any other force we know. Yeah. So it doesn't... No inverse square law. No inverse square law. It, it's, it's the same amplitude at 50 light years away as it is 50 feet away. Well. What it is, it always is. Yeah, it, so it doesn't diminish. Also, it isn't carried by any force field that we know, like gravity or light or anything. It just happens. It's just part of nature.
Mm-hmm. No, so no carrier. There's no carrier. So how do you measure it then? <laughs> well, remember, this is all in the theory. Yeah, okay. This is what the theory Theoretically, says. Theoretically, this is, this is supposed to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's quantum theory. It, quantum theory has never been wrong. But this is, this is not predicting anything. This is just what happens inside the wave function. So it could be, you know, wrong. Mm-hmm. So we've got a... I, I use a little mnemonic to describe this, that this is the quantum connection for entangled particles. It's, oh my gosh. Quantum uh, connection for entangled particles. Quantum entangled particles. Yeah, I can remind you of when you had Al and I participate in your entanglement experiment. <laughs> that might be a good illustration for this point. That was that the Stellarator, I think it was. The, yes, your with invention, your Stellarator. The stellarator. Well, I've been famous for devising preposterous experiments. <laughs> yeah, this was a good one, Nick. <laughs> like, like the yeah, I like it, the fact we were in the hot tub doing it. Like the Metaphase typewriter yeah. for trying to yeah. use a quantum device to, to communicate with Harry Houdini. Yeah. Or the possibility that when you go out into the nighttime sky, there are quantum coherent pancakes coming down from the sky from each star. Yeah, And it may be that if you look at these stars through a tube, you might become quantum connected with your partner. With that star. With that star. That star could connect you. And if your friend is also looking at the, at, same, at the star, same star. Only that star. But only that star. Then they're connected to you through that star's. Could be. This is something right. called the quantum stellarator. I'm trying to use quantum entanglement as a way to, you know, a kind of intimacy between two people. Mm-hmm. Now, this didn't work, but there may be something like that. This is part of my, we don't should get into this, Al. This is part of my experiments into quantum. I didn't know it yeah, didn't work. I was under the impression yeah. that we were entangled. Well, Are you saying we, we were, were not entangled? W- 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 I looked. I did the. I did the math for it, and it, actually, you can't get entangled that way, uh, <laughs> <laughs> according to physics. Anyway, and what about if you're already entangled? Does well, that affect well, you the have math? To, you have to learn how to get into this kind of entanglement. It sounds. It seems like Nick's suggesting that humans can quantumly entangle with each other. Well, this isn't physics. We don't know how the mind works. We don't know how emotions work. That's a more complicated. That's a that's much more complicated than yeah. physics. But one of the things that amazes me about physics is that quantum theory is so strange and beautiful, and that's only how dead matter works. Can you imagine <laughs> if we ever understand psychology, what alien beauty that will have? Now, well, that's an interesting question. Do you think that... Just remember, 30 seconds till the next break. Okay. All right, well... We're going to leave you with a cliffhanger question here. Does Ponder. nature use quantum mechanics? Well, all of physics is nature, that part, but we don't know how nature does the psychology part. By the way, the smartest people in the world were baffled by the world until they discovered quantum mechanics. And we don't even close to discovering anything like this in psychology. We don't even have a bad theory of consciousness. <laughs> well, wait a minute here. I, there's a few psychologists that are working on that. Working After on that, break. too. There were people yeah. working on physics, too. Right. Okay, we are back. We're talking to Dr. Nick Herbert about quantum entanglement, the new Nobel Prize in physics that was awarded this year on the topic. And Nick's going to help, hopefully 
help us understand it a little bit more. And we were just talking about the connection between physics and psychology. And it's your understanding that psychology is just too primitive right now to really be understood from a physics point of view. We don't need to ask for a physics point of view, any point of view. <laughs> any point of view. Psychology is just a nascent science. I mean, just experience your experience for a moment. Okay, where does that come from? How would you explain it? It comes from the now. Well, it, it happens right now. <laughs> it emerges. Now. It's like a fountain. Right, but, but yeah. can you go any further than just saying, wow? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but no, how? No, it's not like, much. like it has something to do with neurons? I think there's some kind of thought generator that's creating thoughts. Oh, that's uh, pretty vague. Yeah. Do you have any equations? It's a probably, um, <laughs> I can turn the volume up and down on the thought generator. I, I, yeah, I, I think it's not understood how to create one yet, but we're trying with AI. You, you know, know I just read a book recently called The Mathematics of Depression, I think. Yeah. And this was a psychologist attempting to propose a more accurate measurement model for psychology so it's been there are people trying to discuss that well i mean this is a gigantic problem and there are people all over you know working on it mm-hmm. yeah but no one's even come close to anything like a solution let's get back to entanglement yeah because it's something we could talk about okay <laughs> all right, the mind you can basics here then yeah so this connection this this connection between these particles that are sent to alice and bob is unmitigated, that it doesn't fall off a distance, unmediated, there's no field that connects it, and immediate, that means faster than light. Yeah. So this is a really, nothing like this. Huh. this. These kind of connections are what physicists call non-local. Now, that's a very tame word for an abomination, a sin against the Holy Ghost. Physicists don't they just, if you mention the word non-local, they, this, that's impossible. Well, shades of voodoo here, huh? What's that? Shades of voodoo almost, huh? It's like uh, considered magical rather than real science. It's, it's, huh? it's closer to voodoo, and it has no part in physics. Something just can't happen across the universe instantly without fading and without any fields to do that? No. The, well, so, as I recall, the fundamental beginning of physics is that the, force equals mass times acceleration. Yeah, but so. that's, a, that's a local theory. All right, well, that's a local the, theory. That's okay. why anything well, that doesn't fit that criteria the is only outside. Other, the only other thing that makes sense to me, maybe, you know, is this the Big Bang, where space expands faster than the speed of light in order to create the universe. Well, but that's... Going faster than light isn't the bad part, you know, because that, that, that has a medium. The, the space, space-time is a medium, and it's expanding faster than light because yeah. it is the measuring of everything. But mm-hmm. that doesn't bother physicists because it's not non-local. It's all connected. to it has, it's, Space-time itself could be considered a kind of field, and it's expanding, and there might not be any limit to the speed at which it can expand. That's conceivable, but non-locality is not. Okay, non-locality well. makes physicists sick. So, so <laughs> well, you, let's get into this a little. Why is non-locality so hard to uh, accept? No, it's, it's not just connected? disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> We're talking about emotional an emotional yeah. experience that, that physicists have towards anything that's non-local. Huh. Hmm. Now, so there was this physicist, John Bell. He's an Irish physicist from Belfast working at CERN at theoretical uh, particle physics, physics. And he was a well-renowned physicist. But on his sabbatical, he decided to look into reality, not experiment, not theory, but reality. 
especially the reality between entangled particles. What kind of reality could lie behind them? So he worked on something called hidden variables. He imagined the most general kind of reality that you could think of, mm -hmm. and he described these using something called hidden variables. And he wanted to examine reality. I mean, this using mathematics, for God's sake. And so he said, okay, Alice and Bob are far away, and their particles were once together, so that each particle, each photon, can know anything it wants about the other photon. So they really are one, even though they're separate. They really it came are from one. the same source. But yeah. what Bob's particle cannot know is how Alice sets her detector. Because Alice can sit her detector at any time, even while the particles are moving. Up or down. And, 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 and that would be a non-local connection because it would be an instant connection that isn't mediated by anything. So he said, I'm going to exclude that. I'm only going to consider local models of reality. So he says, so he, he constructed the most general local model of reality and he derived something called the Bell inequalities, that these observables had to satisfy the inequalities that he derived from mathematics. They're called the Bell inequalities. Hmm. And so well, quantum mechanics can predict what's going to happen in this Alice-Bob photon experiment, and quantum mechanics violated the Bell inequalities. Hmm. So what this means is that reality must be non-local. <laughs> Disgusting, uh, abhorrent abomination. Bell proved that reality. This doesn't mean... so. If there was a non-local connection between Alice and Bob, maybe this could be used for faster-than-light signaling. That's what a lot of uh, us thought. quantum encryption. And it's one of my yeah. hobbies. Faster-than-light signaling, so you can actually talk to someone faster, faster than light. Faster than light. Yeah. But it turns out the same theory, quantum mechanics, says that that is, that is impossible. That, that, that despite what Bell says about these inequalities, you can't use this non-locality to uh, send signals faster than light. You can't use it, period, right? Is that the, the belief? You can't use it, period, but, but yeah. the, the big thing is faster than light communication. Would and that's mainly because of quantum randomness. Quantum randomness smears out all Gets this. Gets rid of those. So this will stay, if, if we, we haven't proved this yet, Bell said that if, if these inequalities are not satisfied, then the world is non-local. But no one had tested this yet. The quantum mechanics predicts these, we, this, these inequalities will be violated. Yeah. But no one had ever done these experiments because there weren't that many entangled things around in, in, in 1964. Well, he, yeah, why, why is it so hard? Why not? Why, was it hard to make entangled? Yes. Well, what, can you give us an example of, uh, of how they entangle well, things today? Well, what, what, what it is is two yeah. photons coming from the same place. Yeah. One example of that, the example that Clauser used in his experiment, are mercury vapor lights. Mercury vapor lights emit a blue and a green photon, and they are entangled, sort of. Right, because they come from the same place? Well, because they come from the same place, and there's spin conservation and things like that. So at certain angles, they're really very entangled, and other angles, they're not. Huh. But most of them 
you have to get the ones that come out together, but there was a lot of them, a lot of blue and green photons going in all directions. So you got to get the ones, this green photon and that blue one. But there's a lot of background, you know. You get this blue one that yeah, isn't connected to the green one. But now, nowadays they use lasers? So, well, I'll tell you how they do that. But now we can, we can make entangled photons easily. We got a crystal. You shine a laser into a crystal and it, a blue light turns into two photons of half the frequency, and they're entangled. Just right away. Uh, well, right away. You just shot yeah. them in, go into a crystal. You don't need to use a arc lights that most of them are not entangled. Yeah, crystals and lasers. Sheets yeah. Of, sheets of Atlantis. You, 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 <laughs> now these experiments are done in high school labs because of that. Wow. Mm -hmm. We can entangle yeah. all kinds of photons. Entangled, you know, we can get a whole bunch of high school experiments. <laughs> what's that? Entangled high school experiments may be yeah, going yes. on. Huh? Yeah, we could do that. Huh. Now, but in those days, this was not possible. Yeah. And... Bell's theorem came out in 1964 and was met with a resounding silence. <laughs> no one paid any attention to it. Huh. And the reason was, it wasn't about physics. It wasn't about experiment. It wasn't about theory. It was about reality. And that that's philosophical kind of stuff. So no one paid any attention to it. Huh. But John Clauser, who was a graduate student at Columbia, picked up this obscure physics journal and said, hey, this is really something. No one's done this experiment. Of course, quantum mechanics predicts it, but no one's ever done an experiment on entangled particles. Maybe I could do this and learn something about reality. <laughs> so he took it to his advisor, and his advisor said, John... If you do this experiment, you're never going to be able to get a job after you graduate. Wow. Nobody's interested in reality. Just that's for philosophy. Philosophers. That's for old people with beards and, and for you know people scrubbing around in dusty libraries. Yeah, that sounds almost racist. So oh, it was the physics they call equivalent. It, it was the physics ageist. equivalent of racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so this is a quote from how the hippies save physics, which if you want to know more about this, you should read because it talks an awful lot about Clauser's experiment. Mm. So here's Clauser. Clauser, a buddy experimentalist, realized that Belsium could be amenable to real-world tests in a laboratory. Excited, he told his thesis advisor about his find, only to be rebuffed for wasting their time on such philosophical questions. Soon Clauser would be kicked out of some of the finest offices in physics, from Robert Servers at Columbia to Richard Feynman's at Caltech. Bowing to these pressures, Clauser pursued a dissertation on a more acceptable topic, radio astronomy and astrophysics. <laughs> yes, much more practical. Yeah, yeah, but at the back of his mind, he continued to puzzle through how Bell's inequality might be put to the test. Yeah. Hmm. Uh. It seems almost contradictory. Why would looking at reality, which is what you think scientists would be into, no, we're uh, not would, into reality, uh, be considered philosophy when actually that is what reality is? No, that when you're looking, no, no. Am I missing something here? Yes, you're missing Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant talked about things as they are. He believes that that cannot be known by humans. 
things in themselves, I mean, the, what the, they the, really are. That's the mystery. That's the ultimate that's a, mystery. We, what we yeah. know are appearances. What you and I see and hear and smell and all that are the appearances. Behind that is a hidden something, including our feelings. All that we know are appearances, merely. The shadows on Plato's cave. We don't know what makes all this happen. And quantum mechanics... It doesn't tell you either because we don't know what the wave function is and we don't know what measurements are, so it isn't much help. But deep down, see, it's hard to even talk about reality, but Bell proved something about it. <laughs> proof, a mathematical proof that if you do this experiment and it comes out in this way, then reality must be non-local. Must be this abomination. The abomination of non-locality. The abomination of non-locality. But, okay, so, I like to, after the break, I like to hear what you think of non-locality. Because I have a feeling you don't think it's an abomination. We'll be back after the break. Okay, welcome back to the show. We're talking to Dr. Nick Herbert about uh, quantum entanglement and about the non-locality being something that physicists really have an aversion towards. And uh, I was just trying to understand why exactly. We were explaining that in terms of Kant. And, yeah. Reality is what, is what you don't want to talk about in physics. Oh, you, we you have to, a theory of the appearances. Why is that? is that? Is that just cultural conditioning or is that real science? Um... That's a good question. Uh, I think it's modesty on the part of physicists that we can explain this, but we are not going to go further. It's almost... No, not, you're not allowed to yeah, cuss seven on words the air. Here. We, we, uh, you, you know, there are so many fields that use yeah. gobbledygook and words that don't mean anything, and physicists don't want to be part of that crowd. Huh. They don't want to say more than they know. So, what we, what our field is, is the appearances. We want to find out the laws behind motion. We want to find out the laws behind heat. But don't you have to speculate to be so certain? Oh, speculation is fine. But but that's okay. that's but 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 to say that you know something about reality that is verboten. That authority to say I know how reality works that that would be considered. nobody knows how reality works. What about God? <laughs> Have you had him on, a sh on the show yet? No. <laughs> all the time, man. He's everywhere. Well, yeah, in, in some sense, yes. In some yes, sense, we're all is. God, but we don't have that knowledge that God has. So what is well, it about reality that's non-local? Well, we'll get to that. Okay, so we were with the non-local understanding a little bit more deeply. Why is right, it so right. adverse so, to science? So if, if Bell's inequality is violated, which quantum mechanics says it is, yeah. then when Alice makes her measurement, Bob's particle is non-locally changed. Its possibility for interaction now is different than it was before she made her distant measurement. Hmm. So a non-local interaction 
or influence has occurred in this experiment. Mm. And if you have a trillion entangled photons, then there are a trillion non-local interactions when you measure those things. That non-locality is not some rare thing. It happens all the time. Huh. Like if, it's a normal? If. Part of the If universe? the Bell inequality is violated by experiment. But that had never been tested. But quantum mechanics says it will be violated. But John Clauser said, look, this is a very unusual corner of physics. Maybe quantum mechanics is right everywhere else, but in entangled particles, it's wrong. And reality is local. Reality is local like Einstein thinks. So here he thought that he had a chance to do an experiment on reality. <laughs> Yeah, well, you laugh, see? You well, see? It's, uh, well, if he could show that's how reality works, then he could get a Nobel Prize for it, right? You might. He thought he would yeah. show that quantum mechanics was wrong. You get one for that, too. No, no, no. no. You, right. don't, you, don't get a real, you don't get a Nobel Prize for showing that quantum Re mechanics is right. Really? Uh, only if it's wrong. Only if it's wrong. You're looking for so, disprove the existing... So I first yeah. met John Clauser at a ratty little lab in Berkeley. He had taken over an old experiment that it, it duct taped it together, huh. and he was trying to do this experiment to test whether Bell's inequality was satisfied or not. Hmm. And we met him in his lab and talked to him as members of the fundamental physics group. Mm -hmm. And no one was paying attention to him because, like the physicists say, John, if you do this, you'll never get a job. Paint me the picture when that happened, when you connected with him. Was it when you were 10 years after you graduated from Stanford? And Yeah, I, I got interested in Bell's theorem too. I was going to prove it wrong. Ah, so, so is that why you connected with him then? Because he well, had, yeah, had partly because we, we, the fundamental physics group was interested in the edges of science, and this was one of the edges. And you knew of about science. John the Bell's theorem, even though it was. Uh, oh, I yeah. learned about Bell's theorem about a year after Clauser did. Heinz Pagel said, "Hey, Nick, here's something you might be interested in." Heinz Pagel. Heinz wasn't interested because he was a real physicist, <laughs> but, but but I was a <laughs> not look, not I, I was a speculative kind thing, of yeah. guy. So I tried to prove Bell's theorem wrong. Huh. And I first thing I did was I simplified it so I could understand it. It actually pretty, is pretty simple to begin with. And I ended up with the shortest proof of Belsum that reality has to be non-local if quantum mechanics is right. It was published in a couple... It's in some textbooks, too. My, it's also in my book, Quantum Reality, this shortest proof of Belsum. So I had a special interest in Belsum. So we met John Clauser in, in Berkeley. And about the same time, Mike Murphy at Esalen thought that he ought to have physicists at Esalen. You know, maybe physicists and yogis get together and, and make some progress in whatever yeah. evolution yeah, playing is. with the nature of consciousness itself. Uh, yes, yeah, we could do that too. So he kind of gave us Esalen for a, a week, once a year. So, and what, so uh, what did, could, did you explain we, this to the yogis? I we, mean, did you try we, to explain non-locality uh, to... No, it was mostly physicists talking among one another. With but, each other. Okay. But sometimes people would come, like Baker Roshi, the Zen master, would come and listen to us and make cryptic comments on what we were talking about. And yeah. one of the best things at Esalen was I invited a guy who worked on, the nuclear, on making nuclear bombs for a particular reason. He was also interested in Bell's theorem, too. But and he came to Esalen as well? He came to Esalen, and he and Baker Roshi got into a debate on the ethical nature of making nuclear weapons. Yeah, and a lot of scientists were divided about that. Huh? I wish I had recorded yeah. that. It was really something. This physicist, whose name I can't recall at the moment, said, it would be better, it would be better if this had never been invented. We agree on that. 
But once it's present, what do you do? That was his way of getting into the problem. Well, nuclear's out of the uh, once, out of the bottle. Once it's right? out of the the yeah. tube, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, like the person, war in Ukraine. You try to create it so that it advances humanity, and your experience in life, so you have a better experience. Well, right? I, I mean, it, what, it, or, or it's a complicated answer. And anyway, it as a whole. So. We didn't get any yogis, but we did get some Zen masters and some yeah. other people into our... So every year, John Clauser and a theorist named Henry Stapp would come to Esalen, yeah. and we would talk about Bell's theorem, especially uh-huh. the very intricate... We, we would like to have disproved Bell's theorem because it, it, every theorem has assumptions mm. about it. And so we went into all the assumptions as close as we could to see if we could refute them or refine them. We did an awful lot of talk about entanglement, and Clauser would come and he would tell us about the experiments that were being done, especially the experiments that were done by Aspey in France, where they were trying to have Alice change her decision while the photons were still in transit. Hmm. Yeah, so it could change before... The photons were still in flight. Now, yeah. so as you, so, speed of light. So, so Alice changes what she had set her experiment for while the photons still in passing. Before they get there. Yeah, yeah. it's a tough experiment. To that really convinced people. But needless to say, John proved quantum mechanics right, number one. And two, he never could get an academic job. Because, <laughs> well, because this was... Ex- well, he was going against Einstein at that right. point, right? Well, what? I mean, wasn't he going... Like, Einstein didn't... Uh, Einstein believed in locality. Yeah, yeah. Non-locality was like you said before. Sort so, of so, 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 so John proved in this crude experiment that yeah. that quantum mechanics was right, which everyone knew, and, knew, and that this reality, whatever that was, had to be non-local. But as they say, no one was interested in that. Yeah. Except people at Esalen. Yeah. Except those into consciousness and uh, the consciousness physics group, telepathy, and the uh, dancing Willy masters. And yeah, that kind of stuff. Faster than light physics. Kind of woo-woo people. Yeah. Uh, so so that there was kind of a merger with the, 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 the hippies and physics. That's where. It, yeah, uh, and of course so. the, the hippies took it. You know, this this explains telepathy. This explains disappearing. This does this. Yeah. This, yeah. That, what that. do you think? Of, anyway, we got to go to a break. Nick, we'll be right. Back. I'm going to see if what Nick really thinks about telepathy and psychic after the break. All right, everybody, this is Dr. and Mrs. Future and Bobby Wilder and our guest Nick Herbert talking about the recent Nobel Prize in Physics and John Clausen, Nick's friend. Talk to you after traffic news and weather here on KSEO Santa Cruz. We like it. That's important. It's time for the second hour of the Dr. and Mrs. Future program. And now, your host, Dr. Future. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the show. In the studio, we have quantum physicist Nick Herbert uh, talking to us today about quantum entanglement and understanding it a little bit more in depth for what it is and uh, why the Nobel Prize was just awarded for work in this field. And interestingly enough, it has to do with a local scientist who was a friend of Nick's, and they worked together uh, in some of the fundamental experiments involving Bell's theorem back in the late 70s, early was it the 80s? Uh, uh, Bell's theorem came out in 1964. Well, he did, I did, but your guys work John at the Clausen physics, you and Klaus. commented Klaus. on it in 67. Uh, well, J- John Klaus, who did an experiment on Bell's theorem in 1972. That was the 70s, so and you about, saw that experiment. Oh, I saw that experiment yeah. while it was running. Uh-huh. And the point I wanted to emphasize is that Bell's theorem is not about experiment not about theory, but about reality. 
So with the hidden thing that makes this world work, and yeah. because it's about reality, it was thought to be philosophical and not of any interest to physicists. And so one of the things that people said when Einstein's special theory of relativity came out was that only six people understood it. Nineteen oh six, yeah, nineteen oh five. But that's probably wrong. I think probably yeah. more people than six understood it. But yeah. when Bell's theorem came out, yeah. only six people cared about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you studying that? And I think that's closer to the truth. Yeah, John Clauser was four years after Bell published it. John Clauser wrote him about it, about maybe doing the experiment. And he was the first one in four years to write Bell about this. Wow. There were only a few of us. I was one of, I didn't write Bell. Actually, I did to invite him to Esalen to give him the reality prize. We awarded a prize to Clauser, John Clauser, and, and John Bell at Esalen in 1982 for proving that reality is non-local. At this time, it still wasn't very popular oh. yet oh. because who cares about reality? And there was a physicist named Abner Shimoni, who was a collaborator with Klaus. Shimoni was one of the six that cared also. All these people now were saying, oh boy, you guys were really excited. You got into a field that no one else was in, which is hard to do in physics because there's so many physicists around and always so many things to work on. That was one of the exciting things about working on Bell's theorem, being one of the six people that cared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was important. That was what important. And we met at Esalen and we talked yeah. about it and yeah. we didn't have any competitors. Uh, well, well, together, was, was there a kind of a group think on understanding non-locality in more depth? Or? Well, yes, yeah. And this isn't the only Bell's theorem. This is the, the two-particle Bell's theorem. Goldberger, Horn, and Zeilinger came up with a three-particle Bell's theorem that is even much more elegant than Bell's old theorem, and that had been put to the test by Zellinger, one of the Nobel Prize winners. Zellinger was a guy in Austria, and he came up with a three-particle Bell's theorem, much simpler and, and more convincing, because it, it's, huh. it's, it's not statistical. If you take the three-particle one, locality says that something should always happen, and quantum mechanics says it will never happen. So you do the experiment, if this happens, then the world's local, and if it doesn't happen, then it's non-local. Could it flip-flop back and forth? Between no, 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 it it's got to be one or the it, other. It, that's the yeah. elegance of this. Bell's theorem is statistical. It says that if this happens only 20% of the time, the world is local, but if it happens 40% of the time, then it's non-local. So you have to do a lot of experiments to prove it with the, th the two-particle one. But with the three-particle, three. it's called the GHZ experiment. It sounds like a drug. GHZ. With GHC, you can have more accuracy. Yeah, you, 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 well, yeah. you, you'd get connected with reality a lot deeper. With connect GHZ, deeper with reality with GHZ. With GHZ. So the real point I want to make is that this theory is really not about physics. Huh. It's not about an experiment. It's not about theory. It's about reality. A theory about reality, philosophy. So John Clauser's colleague, Abdur Shimoni, uh -huh. had a great name for it. He called it experimental metaphysics. <laughs> <laughs> experimental metaphysics. Experimental uh, shamanism in a way, too, huh? Well, it is like that. No one ever expected this. That's one thing. Talking about reality is fine for philosophers, you know, like Kant and, and Hegel and people like that, Schopenhauer. But actually proposing an experiment one can do 
to say something about reality and something disgusting about reality that it's not local. <laughs> Discussing to physicists, of course. Yeah, of course, not to everyone else. I might add. Well, everyone else believes in telepathy. And, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, but they, well, they have experiences, Nick. Most don't, but some well, do. So, one of the things that happened at Essen, of course, we had people like that. You know, that yeah. went to try to explain distant viewing and telepathy and and well, yeah, that must have seemed really far out for physicists to even think about or contemplate. No, I'm fine with thinking about it. Problem with locality or non-locality. Dean Radin said it best. Yeah. Dean Radin is one of the foremost parapsychology experimenters. Right, at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's been doing a lot of research in Yes, in, yes. In he's, a, he's a very well-known, very clever experiments that he has, you know. Yeah. So he says, okay, if you think physics has anything to do with this, tell me a way that I can increase my psychic abilities. You know, these, these psychic abilities are always very small. Tell me something I can do from your knowledge, you great physicist, that I can double my output. You mean like improve my remote viewing kind of thing? Yeah, I can improve my remote by doing something that you know because of your theory of, of interconnection. Yeah, some psychological understanding that we could, our brain could... Uh, well, physical, yeah. actually. It's the same yes. thing I could do. Yeah. It's so, so, so anyone who claims that quantum entanglement has something to do with psychic, this is a question to ask him. Oh, good. Now you okay. can help me do my experiment. Well, we can actually get some results. Uh, but we don't. Physicists have nothing to say about this. Huh. Okay, well, who does? Well, nobody yet. Okay, well, maybe that's the... No, that isn't quite true. Yeah. Okay, well, hold on hold on the thought of who does. Right after the break. See you tomorrow. Okay, um, after this uh, next segment, we're going to start taking call-ins. If you have any questions for Nick on quantum physics, quantum entanglement especially, that will be a good time after 3.30. Nick has been writing poetry lately, physics poetry, and we'd like to introduce you to one of his uh, poems uh, as soon as he's ready. We're talking about quantum entanglement. Mm-hmm. And the fact that reality deep down is non-local, that it's connected yeah. in a strange way. But quantum mechanics on the whole was very strange. It's one way when you don't look at it, we describe the world as a wave function. And when you do look at it, it turns into particles. So I wrote a whole book about this and about how we don't understand this. But I also wrote a poem about this, poetry, called Quantum Reality. And it goes like this. Shall I look at her, or shall I not? Hard, small, separated if I look. Soft, spread out, connected if I don't. Hard particle and soft wave, both. Small right here and spread out everywhere, both. Deep connected, yet lonely separate. Honey? Someday you got to show me how you do that. <laughs> a little bit of yeah. quantum tantric poetry. Yeah. Uh, uh, about <laughs> quantum relationship story there. About the, the, the world we live in, because yeah. the world we live in is quantum. That it's not classical anymore. 
So yeah. we were talking about John Clauser and the fact that he couldn't get a job anywhere because he was working on He's reality. And not, he couldn't get an academic job. He Working uh, on reality, non-locality. He was working on reality and non-locality, which yeah, was, was just, just, no, no, physicists just didn't want any of that. Yeah. But one of the things that did emerge from the Bell theorem yeah. is that it caused other physicists to look at entanglement, which has kind of been an obscure area. So many physicists who didn't care much about reality but cared about their jobs started doing experiments with quantum entangled particles and finding all kinds of other things they could do with them, both theory and what, experiment. What did you find compelling about their experiments? Well, they find some specific one of the things yeah. is something called quantum teleportation. Yes. Where you can take a quantum state and teleport it instantly uh -huh. across vast spaces. The exact same particle would come in. Another thing is something called yeah. the, the quantum no-cloning rule, which I had a part in that, that says that, okay, any information that you have in a classical computer, you could just copy. Just push copy and it will copy it. Yeah. You can't do that in a quantum computer. There's something called the quantum no-cloning rule, and an unknown quantum state cannot be copied. So you have to destroy the original when you send it someplace? Well, you always have to do that when you try and copy it. And the best you could do is 75%, about maybe it's 62.5%. <laughs> so half the time you'll get some other state, almost. So the, the quantum no-corning rule is another thing that yeah. was discovered because of people looking around at entanglement. So there's quantum teleportation, there's entanglement swapping, and there is something called quantum computers that people are now interested in. That, gee, if we entangle these guys, they could do all kinds of funny things. So Bell's theorem and the work of John Clauser and his colleagues called attention to entanglement, and it began spreading out into the world of practical things. Well, that's pretty cool. Not reality yeah. anymore. So We're talking about actual stuff. Like what kind of actual inventions utilize that? Well, so far there aren't very many. The quantum, <laughs> well, co quantum computer... What are, what are close? There are so many yeah. labs out now trying to do quantum computing. Yeah, oh, uh, yes, that's, this. But, that's uh, true. Quantum computing is... It would be... There was a thing in physics, is, one says, what is the largest object that you can get to interfere with itself? I call it the quantum Olympics. And mm -hmm. I think we can get complicated biological molecules now to interfere with themselves. So the same question in quantum computing is, how many quantum bits is your computer? And I yeah. think they've gotten about 100 now. That's the most. Which uh, is still pales compared to our supercomputers using more traditional computing methodologies, right? But but quantum computer has the potential. It, it has the potential. Of course, the, everyone knows what the downside is, that these bits don't stay coherent for very long. And they're very, very susceptible to noise. But you have to start somewhere. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it was. Uh, chaos theory is all about the noise and playing mm -hmm. with it. And so I think... This Nobel Prize was given not so much for a discovery in reality, the fact that reality is non-local, I mean, who cares about that? But the, the fact that it's, it's sprouted out all of these applications for entangled quantum bits. Seems a potential, like quantum encryption, seems like. Oh, uh, quantum encryption is another area where this, this works. But it also could be decryption, too, couldn't it? I mean, well, well, simultaneously. Well, yeah, well, if, if, you're, if the both of you are, in, are yeah. entangled, you have a private channel 
of private of, uh, uh, channel uh, through uh, no matter to, what the distance. That, no matter what, it's so people can't tap it. But they, they have more subtle things than that, that the ways yeah. of, of quantum encryption. Quantum encryption is actually an absolutely unbreakable code because it, the laws of physics prevent you from decoding it. So it's, it's absolutely unbreakable, not like these mathematical codes. And of course, one of the things about quantum mechanics is the very first thing, the very first use for a quantum computer was factoring large numbers, that is, breaking the conventional classical codes. Hmm. So it really kind of make a joke of classical encryption if you had a well, quantum computer. If you had a quantum computer, you could factor the, the, the numbers. I mean, every, take, every secret code and the known... Well, no, not everyone. The, yeah, uh, most uh, of them. <laughs> this will be a that war. Would, it would be really hard for uh, companies no, to deal with that. No, no, else, people yeah. will come up with clever things that even quantum computers... Classical codes that even quantum yeah. computers would take years to, to, to... I don't think we need to worry about, about, about quantum computers factoring, cracking our codes. Now, even run by AIs? I'm not sure. I mean, AI is something like wave a magic wand that it can do anything. <laughs> I know. That's a, uh, that's a little so general. I don't, I don't know. to get more specific. So John Clauser, Elaine Aspey, and Anton Zellinger got the Nobel Prize for basically research having to do with Bell Serum. Yeah. And Bell Serum proves, Bell Serum and the, and the, uh, and the experiments prove that quantum mechanics is right and reality is non-local. And they did this in spite of the fact that no one cared. <laughs> in 1960, 1970, yeah. 1975, no one cared about this. And yeah. now in 2022, they get a Nobel Prize in physics. That, to me, is one of the most amazing stories well, all right, ever. Well, help me out here. Why did they suddenly care enough to give them the best prize? In the well, I, I, I think it's because people started investigating entanglement, and now there are they all saw, kinds of practical, practical, practical things. So the practicality of it has suddenly been recognized. The practicality that their work inspired, not the work that they did, Inspired practical work. Yes, yes. It, it, gotcha. it, it, inspired inventions. They, they inspired practical like, like, work. Like quantum cryptography. And quantum cryptography like being one, yeah. uh, quantum teleportation being, being another. another. And, yeah. and Sending uh, molecules? Well, You're sending molecules? No, no, we're not talking about molecules. We're talking about quantum states. So state only. You, you, you so take a quantum states are what travel instantaneously. You are, you, Alice takes a quantum state. No molecules. No molecules. But, and she's yeah. entangled with Bob. Yeah. Alice measures her quantum state, which destroys it, and instantly it appears on, on Bob's detector. Instantly. Sounds, sounds good, doesn't it? Faster than light. Yeah, it sounds like they could be part of a larger thing. But there's one catch to quantum teleportation. You, you can't guess it. Okay, go ahead. What Alice does is she, she interacts with this state, and she gets four numbers. One, two, three, four. Bob gets a state yet that he hasn't measured yet. So Alice sends him one of these numbers, maybe three, and he picks out a, a pile of filters that he has, one, two, three, four. Yeah. He puts filter number three in front of his detector and then measures, measures one, and he gets a state. He gets that actual state. Okay. If he doesn't pick the right filter, he gets something else. But Alice has to send that information by speed of light transmission to him. So the teleported state is coded in a four-bit code that's quantum unknowable until Alice sends him the key. So quantum teleportation is pretty good, except it isn't faster than light. 
Because it needs that back channel to complete the system. I don't think there's any practical applications yet for quantum teleportation. I may be wrong, yeah. but it's exceedingly elegant. The people who invented this should get a Nobel Prize. Of course, it's not practical, but it's beautiful. Maybe one day, Nick, maybe one day, quantum teleportation well, maybe. might be useful. All right, we've got to go to another break. If you folks have any questions for uh, Dr. Nick, please give us a call at uh, 831-479-1080. And I think uh, Gabby's trying to get on Opal 1. By the way, you can't prove Bell's theorem in certain interpretations of quantum mechanics. Now we're talking to Nick Herbert, who's talking about Bell's theorem and yeah. uh, quantum entanglement. And we were uh, about to take a caller in, I believe. Gabrielle. Oh, oh, hi. You're live. <laughs> I'm here. Is that you Gabby on the other end? That's Gabby. Gabby's yeah. Dr. and Mrs. Future and the oh, Gabby. inimitable Nick Herbert. Yes. 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 Inimitable. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, um, to, good to hear from you, Gabby. Oh, you too, Nick. Yeah, Gabby's I, been I, a longtime fan of Nick's uh, for years. Has been they've been in communication, and she and, was the first person to write me after I published Quantum Reality. Just like John really Krause was the first person to write John Bell. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> she got you. Yeah, she's my first quantum fan. Reality. <laughs> she rocked you early. Yeah, wow. quantum reality. Everybody should read that. You know, you wrote it in such a way that everybody can understand it, even if they were art majors. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was at a time in my life when I was questioning reality. So it was perfect. It's still in, in print and selling a couple hundred uh, copies a month or so, something like that. Oh wow. Yeah, it's everybody should read it. It's a great little book. And, well, how would you um, describe it, Gabby? Uh, basically, for the non-scientist to understand quantum reality, or Nick wrote it for the layperson to understand. Yeah. yeah, and especially if you're someone who's interested in this topic, or you're sort of even on a spiritual kind of philosophical journey, or that's a love or a hobby. Yeah, this is a great book to read. Do you get into the Bell's theorem at all? In, oh, of in course. <laughs> of course. Sure. Well, yeah. Didn't you create, like, the shortest version, Nick? Yes, the shortest version of Bell's proof. Yeah. And it's in that book, of course. But right. One of the nicest things about that book is its blurbs. I got a blurb from my friend Heinz Pagels. I got a blurb from Isaac Asimov. And I got a blurb from John Bell himself. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Did you ever meet John Bell? I actually <laughs> had dinner with Bell with one of the, at Stanford, there was a guy who invited him over for lectures and a dinner, and, and Betsy and I were invited. So Bell was lecturing. He's this Irish guy. He's got this Irish accent, which I can't duplicate. And he says, so you believe that, do you? He says, so you believe that in three minutes, or have you believed in the opposite? He <laughs> <laughs> was really great, and he really did. In three minutes, he showed that the guy, you know, was wrong. <laughs> in three minutes, or have you believed in the opposite? <laughs> how, how was he in hey. politics? <laughs> you know... John Bell could talk about anything. He would yeah. talk about anything, but there was one thing he would not say a word about. Yeah. The Troubles in Ireland. Oh. Wow. Well. He was Protestant. He was raised poor Protestant. Belfast. And in Belfast, Ireland. And his mother would make communion dresses for the Catholics. 
Wow. And he was on good terms with both Protestants and Catholics, huh? and he did not want to even say a word about what was going on in Ireland. You know, there's an award-winning movie called Belfast that came out last year about that very conflict, about the yeah. troubles. Angela's Ashes Belfast. is another one. Yeah. Well, one of the, um, a, the troubles. A few years ago, Queen's College, where Bell went to school, held a 50th anniversary celebration of Bell's theorem. Then they wanted contributors to the social aspects of Bell's theorem. They had all kinds of entries. And I sent a recording of Bell's Theorem Blues, which is a song oh, I, yes. a song I wrote, and I put it in the back of Quantum Reality. So it ends that book. And John Bell, actually, when he was giving a lecture, he showed a copy of my book, and he said that there was this song in the back called Bells and Blues. I'm not <laughs> going to sing it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a copy of that on CD that you sent me years ago. Oh, is that right? Performance? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Nick performed it. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about non-locality, Nick, and... Don't do too much, I, it'll hurt your brain. I was thinking about this. I don't know if it's, it's a, you know, I believe thoughts create reality. And I think the entire physical universe was created with a thought. <laughs> so I was thinking about how sometimes, how we conjure things. And how sometimes we conjure things we don't really want to conjure, like some people. <laughs> <laughs> that come into your life. Right. Like how I think about somebody like at just, I, and I don't know, sometimes I'm like, is it telepathy? Am I picking up on the fact that they're thinking of calling me? And next thing I know, this person's calling me and it could be just so random. This, so that I do that or, or is it just coincidence? I don't think it's coincidence. I, I've, I've had an experience. I think this happened twice to me walking along and I'm minding my own business. And all of a sudden this person comes into my mind. And I walk around the corner, and there he is. See? That's exactly what I'm talking about. That <laughs> happened twice. Precognition. Well, yeah, I don't know what it is, but things like this tell you that the world is not like they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Remember years ago, you, Dr. Future, Amara, and I, we were at... Um, Sun, you were there, weren't you? Chinese food. Likely. I think we had Chinese food. Yeah. That Chinese, the Chinese food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese yeah. place and bullshit. And, um, yeah. yeah, and Nick, and Nick, you said, you were explaining what reality is. Yeah, I and always do. You said, <laughs> you said, this to physicists, this is the world of the phenomenal because you can't explain things. Things appear, they disappear, they change. And none of it makes sense in terms of, I guess, the math of it. Yes. And, and what's the synchronicity? I thought there was going to be a synchronicity story. A hmm. synchronicity <laughs> I mean, for the Chinese food? Well, I just, it just kind of goes along with what we're talking about, this idea that things just magically appear and disappear. And I just think our concept of reality is so ego-based. Well, the way I look at that is that we're immersed in a mystery, and we just should praise it. Yes, yes. Uh, I always think of this as like heaven, like earth is heaven, like our reality, this whole being able to be alive and have directed consciousness and sensory perceptions. It's like hitting the lottery. <laughs> how do I know, how do I know that this is not the paradise promised us by the prophet? 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I think most people would say because there's pain and suffering here, and that wouldn't exist in paradise. Suppose. Well, yeah, but suppose it, we we could not feel anything at all. Suppose it's true that this is the best of all possible worlds. Good. You should see the others. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, much more pain and suffering. Yes, this is nothing compared to what's out there. The alternatives. Yeah, we're doing the best we can. Well, and if we can't know, because physics says we can only have a theory, then as soon as we commit to an outcome, then that's what we get. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, son. Yes. When I was yes. a Catholic, I thought that heaven would be, I'd finally know the answer to all these questions. <laughs> Where are you at with that now, Nick? <laughs> uh, well, since I've become kind of Buddhist, the idea is that to know less is better than to know more. Empty your mind, yes. uh, At last, I have forgotten the name of that purple flower. <laughs> that is impressive. <laughs> uh, I guess I can see that. Returning so to source. Uh, we spend so much uh, money on our computers to have more memory and to <laughs> deny ourselves of that. Go back to 64K and my Apple II. I don't know. Uh, but it but fails so often. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Time. Are you kidding? But not as often oh, as our brains. <laughs> well, our brains are a self-correcting mechanism, it seems. Yes, but in terms yeah. of memory, the brains don't really care what they forget. They only care what they remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't even. Yeah. They don't even screen for what they forgot. Some yeah. people are really good at that. Really good at forgetting. <laughs> yeah. So our computers. Memory is one of the gifts that we have set down for them to do because it enhances what we couldn't do without them. There's a theory that everything is conscious. It's called panpsychism. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, every, it's, everything is intelligent in its own way. Not necessarily intelligent, but, but conscious. conscious. Oh, but okay. most of the consciousnesses have no memory. They just are there. There's the moment. In, in the mm -hmm. moment. Memory is a, is a big upgrade to consciousness. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. theory. Yeah, I like well, that. Uh, it, it's, it's like in Japanese Shintoism, you know, everything has kami, which means everything is a god. Like kamikaze means the god of the wind. Nick, I wanted to ask you something. You were, who, who is you this? This is Bobby, this Bobby, is Bobby Wilder. Wilder. And oh, this hi, is Bobby. another one of these cliffhanger questions because at yeah, the okay. end of the minute we're going to a break. Yeah, you get a chance so to think about it. So get ready. Okay, Bobby. Okay, so you were part of the fundamental physics group, yes. I guess, back in 1975. Well, before I took that. A oh, yeah, yeah okay. It, it, the, that time period, yes. That started around 70, the, the physics group. Yeah, I took a class by Fritjof Capra on the Tao of Physics at Berkeley at yes. that time. So I didn't know you were members with, with Fritjof and... Well, uh, I have to say a few words about Fritjof. Okay, <laughs> after the break, Okay, here we go. <laughs> You guys want to hold on? We'll be right back. And the fundamental physics group yes. will be getting to know them a little better right after Pretty this. Chef Copper, huh? I was Dow Physics. Okay, welcome back to Dr. and Mrs. Future Show. Special edition today, Qu Quantum Entanglement. 
with Dr. Nick Herbert in the studio, Bobby Wilder on the line, Mrs. Future in the studio, and Gabby. Gabby's still on the line, who yes. played a role in, in actually Nick's understanding of things. For Nick, and for many of us, has been a muse in thinking about things and helped inspire his evolution of the concept of quantum tantra. Yeah, we yes, call indeed. you yeah, a real reader. Have, you know, yeah. should mention before the end of the show. <laughs> Soon it will be outlawed, quantum tantra, but right now it's not very well developed. But right now, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody <laughs> cares. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like John Bell back in 64. Well, you know, <laughs> it may be... Quantum tantra, what do they have to do with each other? Who yeah, cares? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so Bobby, as long what as was, it's what not about your, reality. Oh, what yeah, was your uh, comment uh, about Fritjof? Yeah, uh, yeah, Bobby what, had a, a thing about... Uh, Frank, uh, you Frank, had yeah. a story about Fritjof, you were going to say. Well, I have a comment about Fritjof. Yeah. You know, I published this book, Quantum Reality. But before Fritjof, he was what physics is. But physics was in the mind of most people. Physics was that course in high school everyone hated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what Fritjof's book did was he made it sexy and Buddhism and connected it with spirituality. Yeah. So that yeah. book, the Tao of Physics, made it possible for popular physics books and quantum mechanics like mine to be bestsellers. So I owe a you know, personal debt to Fritjof uh, <laughs> wow. because he made physics cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, in his class, he would always call upon either Buddhists or Hinduists or whatever and see what their interpretation of reality was and how it applied to physics. And he had a PhD in physics. Those are people who are licensed to talk about reality. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, yes. gurus and, and people who sit by the bank of the Ganges and things like that. Yeah. But physicists, reality is a kind of no-no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, we, because we're talking about things we don't know about. So reality is a verboten in the world of physics. <laughs> but that's what this Nobel Prize is about. It's about reality. Mm. And that's the astonishing thing. That, to me, that's the most astonishing thing about this Nobel Prize, that it's not about theory, it's not about experiment, really. It's about reality. And John Clauser was a friend of yours, or did you just meet him, or have what acquaintance? Well, I met John Clauser through the uh, Fundamental Physics Group because he was just doing the first Bell Serum experiment ever in the basement of some building in Berkeley. Yeah, it was put together with uh, like baling wire and uh, duct tape. Yeah, it was uh, an experiment someone had already abandoned. They had done some other thing with these mercury vapor things, and he just sort of stuck it all together in a new way them, and, yeah. and did. A, primitive Bell Serum experiment. With so did you root him on? Did you encourage him? Stay in touch with him at the time? Or well, what? we occasionally would go down to the lab and ask him how he's doing, and then yeah. finally he, <laughs> he, he thought he was going to refute quantum mechanics, and he didn't. He proved <laughs> that quantum out. mechanics was correct, but that the world, the reality was non-local. Uh-huh. So, so God so, does play dice. So, so he didn't get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> he didn't get a Nobel Prize for proving quantum mechanics wrong, yeah. but he got a Nobel Prize, in a sense, for proving quantum mechanics right, which yeah. is kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, then that's quantum mechanics for you. <laughs> so are you up for a question from our caller? We've got a caller. On Stephen uh, Hawking's. Would you like to Stephen share? Hawking? Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a skew left. About, uh, yeah, All right. Uh, what, what do you think uh, about Stephen Hawking? Yeah, he's well, got a question. Here's our question. Yeah, Colonel audience. Terry, Dr. Nick Herbert. Yes. I encountered Stephen Hawking, and I asked him if consciousness was how he consciousness, human consciousness was reflected or could be explained in the sonic 
Oh, you're breaking up. You're All breaking right, up, Colonel Terry. We have a terrible connection. So you asked uh, you asked Stephen Hawking's a question about consciousness. No, no, no you're cutting in and out. Sorry. All right. but, you, but you sound like Stephen Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said that yes, just as continuity could possibly involve the nine or eleven string theory dimension. So I can't uh, understand what you're saying. Sorry, Colonel. Try Perry. calling you again. To try again. Colonel, call back. Call All back. Right. Maybe you'll get a better line. So, did you get any hear that question, Nick? We'll it has something to do with Stephen Hawking's uh, idea of consciousness. Which I know nothing about. As far as I know, he's a physicist. He shouldn't talk about consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know that he ever did. Uh I remember that movie up here. Colonel Terry mentioned something about string theory. What is your feelings about string theory? It's a hoax. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Strings? Who are you kidding? Theories are supposed to make predictions. It hasn't really made any specific predictions. It predicted supersymmetry in a very vague way. It didn't predict any masses or anything. And supersymmetry has never been verified mm-hmm. by the accelerators at the energies they can reach. So it's just a way to keep physicists busy. <laughs> string theory. <laughs> a lot of people are working on theories that will go nowhere. I mean, that's how it works. Mm. But, you know, it keeps physics busy, and, it, and it, it's led to some theoretical advances, but no real physics. That's my opinion, of course. I have a question. So yeah, have- now that we've given a Nobel Peace Prize for something established about quantum physics... And, and this is not the Nobel Peace Prize, it's a Nobel Prize. I mean the physics Nobel Pri- Physics Prize. Physics Prize. I, excuse me, I misspoke. What would you say is the next frontier in the theory of physics? Well, I think consciousness is the next frontier, but it's probably, who knows how far away it is. I mean, there are some funny theories going out now, like Hameroff's theory, but yeah, I don't and, think and, and, it's even and, close. What is Hameroff's theory in oh, a nutshell? Uh, uh, microtubules. Microtubules. Well, that's, yeah. where, that's where consciousness is located, microtubules, but what causes <laughs> consciousness is gravitational collapse of the wave function. Orchestrated wow. gravitational collapse of the quantum wave function. That's what Henry Staff used to say. Our consciousness is our reward for collapsing the wave function. A <laughs> 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 fancy way of saying this is your identity. You are this <laughs> and not that. Well, you may be right. Nick, I think uh-huh. we should, for the funny part of the story arc, look at what you're most passionate about with physics right now. Is it the quantum tantra or your, you know, is it... Oh, is quantum that... tantra. Let me say a few words about quantum tantra. Okay. <laughs> I want to woo her, not view her. Pet reality until she purrs. Longing to touch Dame Nature bodily, longing to mingle my substance with hers, and them content with mere observation are nothing but nature's voyeurs. (laughs) (laughs) So Quantantri is a is a future way of getting to know nature more intimately, yet knowledgeably at the same time. That's the quantum part. Because all of the previous religions and gurus and mystics, they had plenty of time, they had often societies that would support them. But we have one advantage over them. They had drugs too. We have one (laughs) advantage over them that might help us get closer to nature in a more intimate way. We know how the world works, and they didn't. And it works by quantum mechanics. 
Now, if somehow we can parlay this extra bit of knowledge into getting in touch with her deep down, <laughs> that's what quantum tantra is about. Ah, it, speaking like, her language. Yeah, and, and seeing reality is alive. And you can well, oh, yeah. play with her. We're going to find out. I mean, that's what quantum tantra is about, to find a new... Woo her, a, a not new, view her. <laughs> in, intimate channel, an intimate channel that is made possible through all this stuff. Maybe even Belser might be part of it. <laughs> if reality is non-local, I can do this, you know, from the comfort of my room. <laughs> I see. You and, can. and do do astronomy. Huh? Get in We're touch with the now. sun. Get in touch with the moon. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, doing it right now. What about communication beyond the veil? Does that fit into the the, the, other the, side. the living physics? Her veils. She takes them off one by one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see if I, if, if I can find something on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the final moments of the show. Uh, yeah. from, Let's um, see. So, right. do you want to share? Oh, yeah, Nick Nick's went from blog. writing. Um, yeah, There's what? the Quantum Tantra blog. I just okay, the Quantum Tantra blog. We'll get a little to that. Yeah. He oh was, yeah. You you should. I have a blog, <sighs> Nick Herbert Quantum Tantra. For 12 years, I've been running this blog, and it has all kinds of material on it, including a review of this Nobel Prize. Okay, and I know Dr. Future has a pressing question for you. I did it. This is Nick's bestseller, Quantum Reality, to this book, which Quantum Tantra. Which no one cares about Quantum Tantra yet, We're but in. it's called Science on All Fours. Physics right? on All Fours. Oh, 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 excuse me. No, Physics. No, Let's not be no, too no, general. No, but but that, that book's out of print. You should, it, you should check got, my blog. That, we that's... only have about 30 seconds, Nick. Do you need to just read a couple sentences from there that would be fun? Nature's Veils. Nature's. This is from... This was the day we discovered the door that is open to all from the start. This was the day we traded in war in exchange for a wide open heart. This is the birthday of love and of life and the child. The day, the day when we tore off our diapers and entangled our lives with the wild. All right. Thank you, KSEO. And Physics on All Fours and Nick Herbert. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick, Nick for being in the studio. Having you. A lot of fun tonight. And Gabby yeah. and Thank Bobby you, Gabby. And Thank you, Bobby. Dr.